I want to ask you now to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 11. John chapter 11, we'll be looking specifically at verses 17 through 27. Obviously, this text is in a greater context of uh, the entire chapter, and so we'll be looking at really elements of the entire chapter. Now, we're kind of going to drop in on uh, the situation in verses 17 through 27, and then we'll step back uh, and look at the greater context and all that's going on in the rest of the chapter. If I could ask you this one question and you could answer it with one word, just think to yourself, you don't have to answer it out loud, you can, but just think to yourself, what one word would you use? What is the greatest problem that we face as a human race? Just think about that for a moment. One word, you get one word, not, not one sentence, one word. What is our greatest problem? And you if you've been in church very long, you'd say, well, sin, right? Yeah. All right, <clears throat> can't use that word. Because that's a right answer. What's the greatest problem that we face? Maybe when you begin to mull through that question, several different words may come to mind. You may think very specifically, because sin's broad, right? It's a very broad category. That's obviously our greatest problem, but maybe many words come to mind, terrorism or war, disease, genocide, on and on we could go, depending maybe on where you live in the world or your circumstances may influence if you were to get very specific in answering that question. But why are these things, if you will, problems? You see, what I... What I want to help us realize today is that our greatest problem, sin, which impacts many other things, leads to really a result that is our greatest problem. The reason that sin or the reason that these specific things that might come to mind are problems is that the thing that they have in common is that they all lead to death. Something that is true unless Jesus comes before, for every person in this room is that we will all die. All right, it's two things you face in life and you can't get away from, taxes and death. You might try to avoid taxes. That's breaking the law, you'll go to jail. But you can't avoid death. It doesn't discriminate. It's a problem that every single one of us will face, and we will face it, and we know that unless Jesus comes again, that we will face it, that it's the result of sin. However, we come together today as, we've already said, as those who have hope. Jesus has addressed this problem in the gospel. Particularly here in the text that we look at today, he has both revealed the problem and given the solution and done so in miraculous and glorious fashion. We come to the gospel of John chapter 11 to our next I am statement. 
where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. We know that he speaks these words in a context where one of his close friends by the name of Lazarus had grown ill and died. So he makes his way there to where Lazarus has died, and Martha and Mary, Lazarus' sisters, are there grieving. We pick up in John chapter 11, verse 17, and this is what we read. Now when Jesus came he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother, would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise in the, again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Jesus in light of the greatest problem that we all face, gives us hope beyond the grave. Because he is both resurrection and life. And through this miraculous sign Jesus reveals himself in this way, demonstrates that this is who he is, that this is what he does, and he does this, and he unfolds this for us in at least three particular ways that we're going to look at together today. We're going to look at this chapter, this text, as Jesus unfolds himself as being the resurrection and life, the one who has conquered death. He does so through three particular ways. I'll give them to you now. Through a providential delay, a powerful affirmation, and he presents it through a personal question. We're going to walk through these together so we see Jesus speak to this issue, beginning with what we call a providential delay. In chapter 7, or excuse me, in chapter 11, verse 17, what we find here is Jesus coming to a funeral. Now, Jesus had developed some close friendships during his earthly ministry. We know that. Among those would have been Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. These were close friends of Jesus. Jesus knew them well, and at some point along the way, we know that Lazarus falls ill. 
And when this happens, Jesus is about a day's journey away when this goes down. And as any close friend would have, Mary and Martha send word to Jesus that Lazarus has fallen sick. Now, this is quite a reasonable thing to do. If you have a close friend, number one, you would want them to know about an illness of someone they're close to. Particularly if your close friend has a reputation of healing people, you would especially want them to know your good friend is sick and ill. So that's exactly what they do. But according to verse 17, Jesus arrives four days after Lazarus has died and been placed in a tomb. Let's go back and look at this context, if you will. Let's look at verse 1 in chapter 11. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going to go there again? Jesus answered, are, you not, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble. He does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. This is the context. Jesus being notified that Lazarus, notice the text that it says, uh, there in the text that it says, Lord, he whom you love is ill. This is the text message Jesus got. This is not just somebody you know. This is the one that you love. This was a dear friendship, a dear relationship that Jesus had with Lazarus. And he has grown ill and Mary and Martha are seeking for Jesus. And notice what we find in the text. Jesus gets wind or gets message that Lazarus is ill. And instead of dropping everything that was going on and running to his bedside, Jesus does something we would not expect. Verse six, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. I mean, after, I mean, just think about that. This is a man that Jesus loves. This is sisters reaching out for Jesus' help, knowing that Jesus can heal him and tend to him. 
We're told here that Jesus loves him, and not only him, but his sisters. His relationship was dear to him, and he stays two days longer where he was. Where's the sense of urgency? Jesus, I thought you really loved this guy. I mean, surely if he cared for this family, he wouldn't respond this way. But what we begin to see throughout this text is that Jesus is very much in control of this situation. Indeed, the reason Jesus waits two more days has little to do with Lazarus and most everything to do with his disciples and Mary and Martha, the grieving crowd, by extension, even us. You can't help but feel for Lazarus a bit here. He's kind of an object lesson, right? Lazarus, you're going to die, and I'm going to teach a lot of people a lot of important things through this. I don't know that Lazarus got that message up front. But Jesus is, is delaying on purpose. I love a great quote from Matthew Henry. He says, God has great intentions even in seeming delays. That's such a good word. That has great intentions even in seeming delays. Notice that Jesus gives two reasons here in the text why he does not immediately go to Lazarus. Verse four, he says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Now, whatever was about to happen to Lazarus was not going to result in his death or at least permanent death. He does die. This entire situation was being worked out for the glory of God. But a second reason he gives is found in verses 11 through 15. Starting in verse 14, we read, then Jesus told them, they're not getting it. They're thinking, okay, he's fallen asleep. He's been, he's sick. Of course, he's gonna be resting, but he's gonna be made, he's gonna be well again. So why would we risk our lives by going back in to a very violent, hostile situation, facing most likely death? I mean, you're going back to the place where, where people are after you, Jesus. Why would we do that? Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Do you love it? Guys, <laughs> he's dead. And listen to what he says. For your sake, I am glad I was not there. So that you may believe. Two reasons Jesus gives on his Delay, his providential delay, it was going to one, be for the glory of God, and number two, it was going to be to strengthen the disciples' faith. One of the most important lessons we could clearly take away from this chapter in light of the many other things going on is that we must always remember when circumstances aren't lining up exactly how we had hoped or planned, God can be, still be trusted. I love the third verse of William Cooper's famous hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. It says, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, 
Don't, don't, don't be judging God by your feeble logic and sense. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. For behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And there are many frowning providences that we often encounter, but we must always remember that behind them, God's smiling face is there to bring him glory and to do us good. Jesus was about to do something extraordinary through an event that involved much grief. This was a providential delay that would ultimately set on display God's glory and create and establish and strengthen faith in the hearts of men and women. Therefore, addressing the solution to our greatest problem. So we have a providential delay, but the second thing that we need to be looking at here is this powerful affirmation that we find Jesus giving. Jesus makes his way into Bethany. He is greeted by Martha. Now, it's a scene that one would expect between close friends. Listen to the text. Jesus comes, verse 17. Already many Jews had come there to, to grieve and console with Martha and Mary, and, and they're there. Verse 20, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you would have been here, this would not have happened. If you would have been here, my brother would not have died. This statement is a statement filled with pain, with grief, with disappointment. Indeed, statements like it have been repeated many times over throughout human history. Maybe even uttered from our own lips in certain situations and contexts. Lord, had you not, Lord, had you been here, had you been here, we would not be having a funeral. Now, it's important to understand that Martha is simply sharing her heart before Jesus, but it's a, it's a heart that's not without faith. We, depending on our reading of this text, some of us might be tempted to give Martha a hard time. I want you to notice the presence of faith. She does recognize the power and ability of Jesus to heal. In verse 22, she says, even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Based upon later conversations, I'm not convinced that she was convinced that Jesus could raise Lazarus from the dead. I think she knew he could heal. That's why she sent the message, right? So she recognizes his power and ability to, to heal people. She acknowledges even the future resurrection. Martha said in verse 24, after Jesus asked, or says to her, he doesn't ask her, he says, your brother will rise again. She says, I know, in the future. When, when all is said and done, this future resurrection that we have, I get it. Yes, he's going to rise in, but so will we. 
So she acknowledges the future resurrection and she understands that God would give Jesus whatever he requested. So there's a lot that is right here with Martha. The only thing that she doesn't seem to get is Jesus' ability to raise Lazarus literally from the dead. Seems to have faith in his ability to heal but not to raise him from the dead. And then there's that dialogue. Your brother will rise again. Yes, I know he will on the last day. And then comes the fifth I am statement. In verse 25, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Of course, Lazarus would be raised in the future when everyone else would be given new bodies, but Jesus wasn't talking about then. He was talking about the present. He was going to raise Lazarus from the dead in just a few minutes. You just keep reading, and that's what happens, by the way. Verses 38 through 44, they go there. Jesus says, take away the stone. Martha's freaking out. Or there's going to be an odor by this time. Jesus says to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eye and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around. So again, you see Jesus is doing this for the sake of those who are around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This was what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about an immediate physical resurrection. So Jesus identifies himself with both resurrection and life. He uses those two terms. And we know that based upon this text and the reading of the Gospels, that it was his purpose and mission to bring life in its fullest sense. So what Jesus is doing here, he's helping Martha and Mary and the disciples and those standing around to know him more fully. She needed to understand that wherever Jesus was, there was also life. Multiple facets to life that we need to understand. Jesus was present physically, so there was going to be physical life. We need to understand that Lazarus' resurrection is a bit different than Jesus' resurrection. This is not a glorified body that Lazarus receives like Jesus would have and like we will have in the future. He literally dies and he just brings him back from the dead like he was before he died. So there was going to be physical life. When Jesus returns at the end of the age, there will be a physical resurrection where our souls are united with our bodies and we're given new bodies, resurrection bodies. At other times, like today, Jesus is present to bring spiritual life. Friends, listen, if you are a Christian, you have been raised from the dead. There are miracles of resurrection all over this room. Jesus is in the business of making 
dead things alive. Spiritually and physically. And he's the only one that can do it. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes, verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at now, now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So here's the indictment upon humanity. We're dead spiritually, dead in our trespasses and sins, children of wrath, carrying out the desires of the body, following the prince of the power of the Air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is our condition. We are dead. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you are spiritually dead. Verse four. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, here's grace, made us alive. And if you're here today as a Christian, this is what happened to you. That moment when you're when you understood the gospel, when you're like, yes, I'm a sinner, yes, I need Jesus. What was happening at that moment was a spiritual resurrection that you could have never accomplished. God miraculously did in your heart, wakened you to the truth of who he is, the reality of who you are, and shows you the problem and the solution in Christ. This is what happened. Therefore, we must give God glory. This is when we sing these gospel-saturated songs. These are not for non-believers only. These are for us. This is what happened to me. God took a dead man, a dead woman, he made me alive. Praise his name. We were dead in our sins, but Christ brings life. He makes us alive. This is what he does. We know that even in the future, we have a physical resurrection that we have to look forward to. As those who have been made alive spiritually, we have a promise in the future that we will be made alive physically. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42. There's a lot in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for time's sake. I'm gonna pick up here in verse 42. It would be much to your advantage to go back and read the rest of the chapters. He's talking about the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. Verse 42 he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a life or became a living being. The last Adam, now that's speaking of Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is the first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those 
are those who are of the dust, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come the past that is saying, the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of sin, or the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see what he says? Death, our greatest problem because of sin, swallowed up in victory. Oh, greatest problem, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Friends, for those who have trusted in Jesus, the resurrection and life, they have the promise of life now and life eternal. And the resurrection of Lazarus was a physical reality, miraculous event that takes place that happens not just for Lazarus' sake. I'm sure Lazarus was happy to come back. But he dies again. You you know that. Right? So this is not just for his sake. Eventually he does die. And so it serves us kind of as a parable of sorts that points to the resurrecting work of Christ. So what Jesus is doing here is he's saying sin brings death and I'm the answer. I'm the resurrection and life. I can bring life out of death. And almost as a rubber stamp to kind of prove it, he raises his friend from the dead. He sets up the scene, he makes the claim, and then he proves himself via the sign. And the message that's sent to all watching was simple. There is promise of life both now and in the life to come. So this powerful affirmation that Jesus has, this claim that he makes, I am the resurrection and life, no other person, no other deity, no other whatever out there could make this kind of claim and fulfill it. Which leads me to number three, a personal question. I would argue that the climax of this account is not when Lazarus walks out of the tomb like a mummy. It's a pretty, pretty big point of the story. I actually think the climax happens right here in this discussion between Martha and Jesus. Jesus, after he claims to be the resurrection and life, he asks a very... Simple but pointed question. 
Do you believe this? Notice what he's asking her. He is not asking if she believes Jesus could raise Lazarus from the dead necessarily. Rather, he is asking her if she believes that he was the source or is the source of true life. Friends, you need to understand that you're going to be asked many questions in your lifetime. Many questions. Just think about the questions. What are your goals? Why should we hire you and why would you make a good employee? What's your credit score? What major do you want to pursue? Will you marry me? All kinds of questions, right? These four words right here in John chapter 11 is the most important question you will ever be asked. I get it, Jesus is talking to Martha. He's asking Martha the question, but it's here for our benefit. This is the most important question you'll ever be asked. Jesus makes the claim, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Do you? Do you believe it? We're gonna let that question just simply resonate in your own heart. Have you considered your condition apart from Jesus and come to understand that apart from him, you will remain dead in trespasses and sins and be separated from God forever? Have you come to an understanding that only through Jesus can you truly have life? Because only in Christ can you be raised from the dead spiritually, eternally. And friend, don't blow this question off. Don't blow it off. Some of you are here today and you need to wrestle with this question. You're thinking, I'm glad so-and-so's here, they really need, no, you, you, you need to answer this question. Because it's a question you must answer. For you will either embrace Jesus as the one who gives life or you won't. Everything, everything in your life hinges on your answer to this question. Jesus earlier in John chapter three, verse 36, says whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You've heard me say this many times over if you've been here very much. There's not this neutral category where you can just kind of kick into until you decide if you're gonna follow Jesus or not. No, if you are not a follower of Jesus, you are dead in your sins and the wrath of God is on you. That's your condition. And Jesus comes along and says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You have to answer that question, friend. 
response to this question we see is twofold. Martha does respond. Martha makes the right confession. Look at her answer in verse 27. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, who is coming in to the world. Good answer. She gets it. He's the Lord. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the fulfillment of promise. And she's embraced that. Her faith may be still struggling a bit as she's trying to put all these things together. I mean, just look at the disciples. They were a wreck still. Just a good reminder, friend, that Jesus is not looking for people who have it all together. You don't have to have every belief perfect and everything just exactly right to come to Christ. He calls out and says, will you believe in me? Will you follow me? And he accepts those who trust in him by faith and therefore begins the lifelong journey of growth in that grace. So respond with a confession. Do you believe this? But also we respond in submission. Martha's profession leads ultimately towards her obedience. When you keep reading the passage, Jesus makes his way into the city and Again, Mary eventually greets him with the same question by the, or the same statement that Martha greets him with. Lord, had you been here, this wouldn't have happened. They were, they were grieving. We know that Jesus eventually goes and, and he weeps and I don't think he was weeping in the same way they were weeping. I think he, his, his grief was, he was almost a righteous indignation over the fact that this is not how things were supposed to be. And the lack of faith among some Even though Martha is still wrestling to fully grasp the extent of Jesus' power, and even the disciples wrestling to, to grasp the, the extent of his power, they would all be changed by this event, but also by an event that would happen not too long from then. There would be another resurrection that would soon take place when Jesus himself would be raised from the dead, and that changed everything. There's no Christianity without resurrection. Don't ever preach the gospel without the resurrection. Yes, Jesus dies for our sin, but friend, don't forget he was raised from the dead. What happens as a result of Jesus' resurrection Lazarus is, is kind of a foreshadow of this, this great work that God does. No longer do we have a group later on, after all this takes place, no longer do we have a group of unsure, weak-hearted followers that they end up turning the world upside down for the sake of Christ. It just reminds us that the promise of resurrection changes everything. And for those whose confession is like that of Martha's, that will be demonstrated in a, in a following transformation. The resurrection changes lives. Listen to how Paul describes this. I mean, we see it in the, in the biblical accounts of multi, several different places. We can go back to 1 Corinthians, for example. In chapter 15, he talks all about the resurrection. And I, and I finish there on verse 57 where he says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, 
Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. In Romans chapter 6, we see something very similar. In Romans chapter 6, we pick up in verse 8. Paul says there, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. The life he lives, he lives to God. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is our testimony. If you've been a Christian, if you've been made a Christian, this is who you are. You're dead to sin, alive to God in Christ. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will no, have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Listen, if you claim to be a Christian and you continue to live in unrepentant sin and think nothing about it, you've not been raised from the dead. It's that clear. Those Christ is made alive are changed, made new. Say you'd never struggle with sin. That's an ongoing battle. You'll be struggling in your fight against it. You're fighting. You're walking, presenting your members to, not, not, not to sin. It's instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. How you live is the result of this reality of resurrection that only Christ can bring and only Christ can bring it because he secured it through his own death and resurrection. As you keep reading this text, as Lazarus comes out of the tomb, we can only imagine the immediate astonishment and response of the crowd. Can you imagine? If we were to go to the cemetery today and Somebody came out of a grave. It would be quite the scene. But we're not left without witness to how this event impacted those who saw it. I want you to see this. In verse 44, Lazarus comes out. Jesus instructs the people there to unbind him and let him go. And then in verse 45, we see the response. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what had happened. See the two responses. Some believed, some embraced Jesus, just like Martha said, yes, you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. But others continued in their rejection of him and went and told the Pharisees 
which, by the way, ends up resulting in this great plot to put Jesus to death. Isn't that ironic? Jesus raises a dead man and many believe, but others reject him and seek to put him to death. And even though they eventually succeed in their plan, brothers and sisters, I'm here to report to you today that there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem that shows they failed. And there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem that proves that God loves us so much that even death itself has zero power over those who believe. Do you believe that? Be the most important question you ever answer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great passage that shows us Christ. Lord, we thank you that you have conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave once and for all in Jesus. Lord, my prayer today is that those of us in this room that have still yet to answer this question, the affirmative, would do so today by your grace and by the movement of your spirit in their hearts. Father, my prayer is that every single one of us could walk out of here today able with confidence to answer the question presented to Martha. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Have you yielded to him in faith? That we would all be able to say yes. So Father, would you work even now hope in the hearts of these gathered? Father, for those who've already said yes, my prayer is that this this reminder of the power of Jesus, the power of our Lord would encourage us and would strengthen us even as we face uncertain times and uncertain days that our hope would be firm and strong because we have victory in Christ. Lord, would you move now even in our hearts to make us more like him as we prepare to stand and sing. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.